Hey guys, this is Brad. Just wanted to take a minute to thank you, the listener, for listening and proving you have a growth mindset. Our mission is to curate information from the top influencers around the world. We provide you with real, actionable steps on how to improve in any and every area of your life. Whether you're an entrepreneur, C-suite executive, or just starting your journey of self-development, professional development is all about growth. And you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. If you enjoy this content, please help us by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Professional Development Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 9th, and we have got on an incredibly special guest, and that's Jeff Lopes. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur, host of the Jeff Knows Inc. podcast. He is a business coach, best-selling author, founder of Kumaraware, and uh, which has actually sold over a quarter million pairs of boxing gloves. He is founder of True Blue Homes, which is your real estate endeavor. And then um, Man's Purpose, which is the fastest growing entrepreneur dad's community. So Jeff, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, boys. This is going to be a, a fun conversation today. I really feel it already. We're super excited. And, and so speaking of which, it's kind of out of left field, but I was listening to a podcast, and I think it was the Talking Back podcast you did last month, uh, okay. where you're just talking about entrepreneurs in general, right? Uh, and you actually mentioned that you even consider a drug dealer to be an entrepreneur. So my question for a couple of guys that are trying to diversify portfolios, how lucrative is that industry? And do you have some people that you coach in that world? <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I coach um, in maybe indirectly, not mm-hmm. directly, but uh, I'm sure it's very lucrative. Probably a lot <laughs> more lucrative than mine's and yours. That's the cartel. I'm sure it's a lot more lucrative than anything we're doing right now. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> no yeah, taxes man, either. Any, any, I'm a strong believer. Anybody that goes out and and, and on their own, they have to hustle to bring in a dollar. Um, it, 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 the only difference is that fine line of being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. Yep. Yeah. And the only way I separate it, if you could walk away from your business for 30 days and it's still going to run or grow, you're an entrepreneur. If you have to be at your business all the time, you're still self-employed. You're still doing well for yourself, but you are still self-employed. You're still trading your time for money. That's the only difference between those two. And there's a stage. Some people have to graduate through them, but um, that's the only difference I find for both of those. But I mean, anybody that's like, you find somebody at a, at a local market, an artist, they're entrepreneurs. They're, they're trying to create their own paycheck every day. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's pretty amazing people that have the balls to go out and do that on a regular basis, right? Yep. Exactly. I, I like how you put that. So in my world, I'm a, I'm a recruiter. And actually, somebody told me not too long ago that there, in our world, there's a business between being a business owner and having a practice, right? So a practice, you look at it as like a dentist, right? People go to yeah. that dentist. They know that dentist. You know, and actually having a business is something that's scalable, something that you can take a step back. Uh, and maybe focus on strategy, and it's sellable if you want to sell it, but you you don't have to. But it's more about um, the business can run without you, kind of like you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's funny you're saying that because I've actually I'm I'm in the process of coaching a dentist that to uh, skills business to sell it. No. It's funny you're saying that because I even even people that run a practice um, with the right individuals. When I'm talking about a practice, a practice is a business. You're gonna have your front desk. You're gonna still take a sales transaction. You're still running it. And a lot of dentists, a lot of doctors nowadays are building up their practices so they have this huge accounts, all these uh, essentially customers on a database, and they're actually walking away and transitioning that to another valuable asset and transitioning to another dentist coming out of school. So a lot of dentists nowadays and doctors are actually building up their portfolios and selling them off and restarting another one. And I've seen a lot of that happening lately. So that's just, just the, there's a little eye on how the... Um, the medical field is changing because a lot of doctors are looking at their practice as a business that's an exitable strategy. And it's happening a lot more than people think right now. 
Yep, absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to do in, in my world as well, in the recruitment world. But we've got a lot to touch on. I mean, we want to touch on how, you know, going from a six-figure to seven-figure and even even eight-figure business and how you've been able to do that. Uh, your efficiency process and how you can essentially get six to seven hours of work done in three to four hours. Your goal setting and map creation, you know, how you were able to not only adapt, but thrive in a pandemic. But I think just about with everyone that we've had on, we always started with purpose because that's what drives people. And that being said, I think Brad actually had a, a kind of a leading question with that. Yeah, so we actually connected in a clubhouse group, um, a, a dad page, essentially. And that's when I, I got, first got turned on you. I connected on all your social medias. And I, I realized that me and you had a, a connection that's mine definitely wasn't as uh, to the level that yours was. But when my daughter was born, you know, it was my first child, um, she gets delivered. And immediately the doctor grabs me and says, you need to be with your wife right now. So I'm they throw me over there. I don't know what's going on. My daughter's sitting over on the on the little table. They're working on her. And then they immediately say, okay, you got to go with your daughter. We got to go to the NICU. So we go to the NICU and my daughter had uh, pneumonia. So she was in, in NICU for seven days, which at the end of the day wasn't a big deal. But for a first-time father, it's like, holy. Oh, very you know, scary. Yeah, it very hits scary. you. You see your little daughter hooked up to, to wires and tubes for, for a week before you can bring her home. It's like uh, you get thrown into it very quickly. So- you had obviously a situation with your son and I heard you talk about it and that, that you spent a lot of time at the hospital every single day. And that's why they said that your your son was going to make it. And I did the same thing. You know, I, I luckily I'm in the situation where I am a business owner that I can take that time and, and be with my family. And I noticed that there was people there whose children were a lot worse off than mine that would only show up for an hour a day and then leave. And so I know that's where where your purpose lies, but some of our listeners might not know your story. If you want to kind of give us an idea of of where you have came from, what you overcame. Yeah, hundred percent. So it was uh, April uh, April nineteenth, uh, two thousand eight. Um, my uh, it was April nineteenth. It was the day before, but it was April nineteenth. Uh, my um, my son was born. Uh, my wife, normal pregnancy, thirty one weeks. Um, she had caught a common cold, which me or you or any of us will get 23 times as a common virus. Um, that virus somehow went into the baby and uh, he became anemic. And um, my wife was feeling really, really not well. She called the doctor. She said, listen, you got a cold. Take some, have some chicken soup. You'll be fine. For some reason, my mom, that never interferes in our, in our marriage, called me like six, seven times a day, like take Lucy to the hospital. And uh, she got home from work and we ended up going to hospital and, um, and our lives just went upside down. Um, my wife had to be uh, put into emergency section. Um, we almost lost my wife and my son the same night. Jeez. Uh, they pulled me into a room and, um, and uh, the doctor uh, told us we probably had, uh, my wife was knocked out um, because they were just putting her through surgery. And uh, they said, your son's got about 10, 15 minutes left of life. Like, do you have a name for him? We didn't even have a name for him. And the first name that came to my head was Tiago, which means God's warrior in Portuguese. I just wrote that down on a piece of paper. And I'm not even a religious guy. And I just wrote that down on that on his birth certificate. And that's when his journey started. And we're very fortunate. We have one of the greatest um, pediatric care hospitals in the world in Toronto, Canada, called Sickius Hospital. For the next four months, that became his home. And um, through the process, he had six organs severely damaged. Um, he was the smallest child in sick kids history at two and a half pounds beyond dialysis. Um, there's so many stories in between there that'll shed a tear to anybody's eyes. And through the process, uh, it was around the four month period. Um, 
we, and I'll get back to what you're saying with your story, but um, we just, we, we, we just wanted to be parents. We just wanted to take him home. And, um, and we forced the doctors to uh, discharge him. They didn't want to, they forced him to discharge him. At four months old, he was four and a half pounds, fit in the side of the palm of my hand, um, never swallowed in his life. He was on feeding tubes. And so we took a baby home that never swallowed. They gave us a, a one ounce bottle, looked like a little toy bottle to feed him. And uh, we had to learn how to, we had to teach our son how to swallow at home. So we do this every day. He would reflex spit out. It took about two, three weeks before he actually started slowly swallowing. And through the whole process, when we discharged him, when they discharged him, they gave us his discharge papers and they had to give him a diagnosis or a label to discharge him. He was diagnosed with uh, several palsy. And they said, um, because of his brain damage, um, he would most likely be confined to a wheelchair his whole life. And I, I remember the next day waking up with my wife and, and, and I looked at her and I said, listen, like, my biggest fear is waking up and being six years old and looking at my son in a wheelchair and knowing that I didn't do everything I possibly can to give him an opportunity. I didn't know his future. I didn't know what that was going to hold, but I was in my head determined that I had to do everything I can financially, mentally, spiritually, whatever we had to do to get him to the next level. And fast forward uh, 12 years, um, we took everything as a win. When he six months old, when he smiled for the first time and laughed, my daughter dropped something in the kitchen floor. It was like everybody was crying, a big celebration. At a year and a half old, when he first balanced, it was a big celebration. And I would spend three to four hours a day on him, stretching his legs, rehabbing him, doing everything. And eventually got to the point where he was able to balance enough that we convinced the doctors to put him on AFO's braces to walk. And the brace would go up to his knees. And through the process, um, we'd always set goals and I have his whole bedroom. We'd always set up these papers all over his walls. And, and I would say, okay, we're going to bat, we're going to bat, we're going to hop on one leg. And that took like three months to do. And we would, and we'd every day, I would not stop to hop. And we continue this journey. And my son's this most determined little, this kid's a, a beast, like complete beast. When you put something in his head, he wouldn't stop. And we set a goal that uh, by 12 years old, he'd be out of his braces. And by his 12th birthday, we want to run a marathon. And every doctor thought we were crazy. Before his 12th birthday, he was out of his braces. And April 19th of 2021, he turned 13. April 18th, we ran our first marathon together. Oh, it's awesome. So this has been an incredible journey. And going back to your story, um, we were on the first, fourth floor, the most intense ICU room in, room in, in Sick Kids Hospital. And it was six babies in that room at one time. And it was a rotating door. There was every day, every couple of days, a baby would pass and it would be rotating. And there were so many times me and my wife would be sitting there by ourselves. And, and my son had one nurse. You always get one nurse. They're kind of always on the shift. It was always one nurse that was there every day with us. And we were there for the four months every day. Did not miss a day from seven in the morning till seven at night, Monday to Sunday. And one day I looked at the nurse. I go, like, where are all the other parents? Do they come like after we leave? Do they come before? Like, where are they all? And we see the odd one come in for a meeting with a doctor, but it was very rare. And she says, a lot of parents don't want that human connection with their child, knowing that they're going to lose their child and they're not going to, and they don't come here to build that connection. Yeah. And the nurse looked at her, Marianne, remember her name still, she looked at us, she goes, your son's going to make it out of here because he knows you're here every day. Like when I think about it, I, I get goosebumps because it, it's such a crazy thing when you think about it, how parents Dude, yeah. wouldn't want to build that human connection with their child. It's, it's sickening, but it's, it's, it's very, it's very true, man. I saw it with my own two eyes. Yeah. I got, I mean, I got chills when, yeah. when you just talked about that. That's in, yeah. that's incredible. It, yeah. Is that like how you did talk about in the room, you had your your goals that you put up around there. Is that something that you did prior, you know, in, in business and in life before? Like, is it, is it did you have your, I, I your changed, vision board? I, I, when, when my son, like I was always a hustler, don't get me wrong. I, I was always a hustler. I always 
would work more than everybody else. I would overwork. I was never home. I had a, a year and a half year old daughter at that time. My wife was pregnant. I was never home, buddy. I was I was probably the most deadbeat dad. I was never home. Um, I was disengaged with my wife. I was probably end up on a road to divorce. And my son changed my life. Like I literally everything he's been through, I wouldn't change it because it made me the man I am. And a lot of people say um, I was meant to be his dad because I'm I'm a complete hustler. Like I don't when I put something in my head, I'm obsessive till it's done. And so, but I'm, I'm a true believer that he was like, I, he was made to be my son. Like I'm a better man. I'm a better human. I turn automatically when he got home, which I turned it to three to seven where I'm home every day from three to seven. Today, I'm, today is one of the days and to be honest, the last month hasn't, has my life has gone upside down. And I don't know if, I don't know if I told you guys, but my father just passed away four weeks ago. Sorry, and uh, so life's been, um, and I know this is not part of the conversation, but I was, life's been upside down. He was my best friend, Mike. I'm 44 and I would talk to my dad three times a day on the phone. And he suddenly was taken away from us with a heart attack with no signs, no nothing healthy as a dog. So the last four weeks of my life have been kind of upside down as well. Yeah. But I'm very happy because my dad was, he loved my son to death. And he, he all he wanted was to see him run that marathon. He was able to see him run that marathon. So that was pretty special that he was there at the finish line to see him run that marathon. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, and we're really sorry to hear about your loss, honestly. And uh, your son, yeah, because I, I don't think you you actually mentioned that before. The One of the biggest goals that you all set was for him to run a marathon by the time he was 12, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he ran, like I said, he ran it on April 18th this year. He ran his marathon. Yeah. And something that you touched on, which which Matt will probably call me out on, is um, you you say that there is such thing as a, a work-life family balance and up until honestly, probably the last two months, I, I've always adamantly fought the other way. I, I've said that um, I think it's a bunch of bullshit. So what do you, what do you have to say about that? Because I, I I am a workaholic. I work my ass off, but I try to I try to be present when I'm when I'm with my family. I try to give them one hundred percent of my time when I'm at work. I try to give it one hundred percent of my time. But but what's your thoughts on this family life, work-life balance? Yeah, I, I believe there's, I mean, I, I'm a strong believer and I've been like this for a while now where, I mean, family is everything. I mean, work, if you're a true entrepreneur, you can make money no matter what. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, you want to make enough money to put your kid through school. You want to be able to enjoy life and do the great things in life. But I am a strong believer that family is everything to me. And I'm not, and, and I live by this. I don't bullshit it. I don't say it. I live by it. And how I do it is I make my non-negotiable. So my family time is non-negotiable. And, and what I do is, like I said, I, I took all the three to seven. The last month's been a little haywire, but I call it the three to seven. I find, especially with young kids, sitting home and having a meal and, and, and having that comfort in that safe zone of eating a meal. Me and my wife made sure that we started this from a very young age. My kids are 13 and 15 now. My 15-year-old daughter sits down in front of us having a meal every night and has open conversation that most 15-year-old girls want to tell their parents because she has that safe zone. So we've done that where we've had such a tight-knit family. And, and how I've done that is I figure out in my schedule what are non-negotiables. I work my work around it. And if I need more time, I figure out sacrifices. And I call them two sacrifices. I wake up at 4.30 every morning, not because I like waking up. Not I'm not one of those woo-hoos that wake up at 4.30 in the morning and do yoga. I'm, I wake up at 4.30 every morning because I realize that from 4.30 till 9 o'clock, I can get a majority of my work done in my day. When people are ready to start their day, I've pretty much done my day. From yeah. there on, it's just podcasts, meetings, dealing with my staff, and then focus on my family. And, and I also realize when my schedule does get a little hectic, I'll look at my schedule. And I'll deplete it. I'll look at what parts of my schedule I could take out. And be honest, even what humans or people in my life that I could remove that are wasting my time and wasting my energy. 
So I actually reanalyzed my schedule and my, and my connection of humans around me every eight weeks. And I look at it and I think, what could it be removed? Who could be removed? And what do I need to focus on? And I, read, and I do that every eight weeks consistently all the time. Constantly auditing your, your life. Audit, 100%. You have to, man, because we've been, we've been very numb. And when you become very numb, is that that is when shit happens, you don't realize it. So you've got to constantly be focused on your schedule, your priorities, and your non-negotiables on a regular basis. Yeah, and you talked about how your son kind of flipped your life upside down uh, and your priorities completely shifted to him, right? If you yeah. would look at your track record and your resume, um, you would pro- people probably wouldn't guess that you have that much time for your family. Serial entrepreneur, podcast, seven-figure, eight-figure businesses, Right best-selling author, like all of this stuff. Um, and so I guess I want to talk a little bit about that because you've I've heard you say on a couple of podcasts that you, uh, once your son was born, you were able to find that three to four hours of space and get about seven to eight hours of work done. So how did you do that? And then do you have any tips for other people out here that might be listening that can improve on uh, efficiency and effectiveness so they can get more done in less time? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is surrounding yourself with the right people. I mean, and, and for somebody starting off a business, and I'll talk about that. I mean, reality, you're wearing a ton of hats and I, and I appreciate that because that was me at the beginning. But when you are able to start firing yourself from positions, you're freeing up a lot of time and you value your time. You really quickly start seeing how quickly your business can scale and how much less time you have to be involved. So I really analyze my business every, I do it every quarter. Every quarter I analyze my business and figure out what duties I could pass along to somebody else. That's first off. Um, second is when you're looking at your schedule and your time is, is really, really understanding that everything is blocked. So if I have a podcast for an hour, that's hour blocked. When that hour is done, I move on to something else. If I have a project and I, and I have it blocked in for two hours, I focus on that for two hours. When that if two hours coming up, if I'm not done, it moves aside, it's ready for tomorrow. And then that's how I keep my do list. And I just keep shifting it to the top, whatever it does not complete, but I'm very precise on my schedule. And, and because of that, and I realized how precise I got to be on my schedule, it allows me to really hone in and, and, and have energy directly on that. So you get a lot more accomplished because if you focus on a project and you're working on it for five, six hours, by the time you get to hour two, three, four, your production level is very, very weak. So I really hone in, say, hour to two hours max. I give everything I got and then I move on to something else. And you get a lot more done when you're fresh on something. And so we talked a little bit before the podcast actually started here recording that we started as a book club. The the yeah. first book that we read was The One Thing by Gary Keller. And what you're saying is echoing pretty much everything he wrote in that entire book, which is time management, time blocking, setting that time aside. So where did you come up with that concept? Was it something you created? Is it something you picked up from from a book or... <sighs> You know what? I, I I've always been the type where, um, be honest, I'm, I'm I, I don't read a ton of books. I, I I find my knowledge through just audio. If I do is books is audio, but I've always been a type where I surround myself around people that I want to be or people I want to get to. Yeah. And 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 I whether I'm learning directly as a being mentored or indirectly mentored, because a lot of people don't realize you could be indirectly mentored just just as much by just watching, observing what people that are successful are doing, right, and how they manage your time and how they manage your schedule and how they grow and scale a business. So, and a lot of it's trial and error, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been successful in business. I've had two gyms we've done well with. I've had a, a memorabilia business. I've, I've had all these other companies 
and I exited from them. But you you win some, you lose some. Don't get me wrong. Everybody loses. The end of the day is how many more wins are stacked above the losses is what counts, right? So when I look at it, is 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 everything's trial and error. And I've always been, and I've been at this for 26 years. To be honest, I started my first company at 17, so it's been longer than 26 years. And it's a lot of trial and error, trial and error. And 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 when I do make mistake, I learn from it. I don't do it again. And I and I I think the easiest thing I'm going to say is is don't be scared to ask questions. Yep. I think a lot of people fear asking questions. I'm a, a networking whore, man. Like I literally try to network with people 24 seven. And as I network, I have zero zero issues asking questions. They don't want an answer. They don't want an answer. But I ask questions when I want to know something. I'll ask a question. Yep. And I think a lot of people are scared to ask questions or don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple different ways I was thinking about going here because you there, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll go with the most recent thing that you talked about, which is fear, right? So when you were on uh, Second Chance Athletes podcast with Daryl Sinson, you talked about fear and how fear isn't something that you're born with, but it's something that's actually learned. Uh, and it's typically ingrained with us through our family, right? Um, but you do something super interesting with your family uh, to get ahead of fear. Can you talk to us about that? Because actually we were talking about it and we might want to implement that on our podcast and just and end up like recording those things. But anyway, just talk about what you and your family do and then we'll get into that. Yeah, so I'm a strong believer and this is something I've actually studied. Um, I studied parenthood. I've done it for 12 years. Parenthood and fatherhood. I've really, really studied uh, great dads. I've studied just great parents and, 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 and intake as much as I can. And one thing I learned through the process is um, there's so many things that as parents, we're either directly or indirectly teaching our children and fear is one of them. And you always hear it. And I, I say all the time, you, you don't run the, your mom's screaming, don't run that stairs. You're going to fall or don't do, you're always hearing that fear put into you. So you're always, as a child, you're always stopping, you're hesitating, do stuff. As we get older, we don't take chances and the chances we don't take creates more and more fear in us. And then add social media to another level. Now people have this fear of what my peers are going to say, what my peers are going to think. So the fear just gradually grows and grows. And the less chances you take, the more fear happens. The less wins you have, the more fear starts building up. So I'm a strong believer in um, breaking that as a kid, right? I mean, as a family, um, uh, 2020 has been a little hectic. But as a family prior to that, and we've done it a, little, a few times, is um, we try to do every eight weeks, maybe every every 12 weeks, we find something our kids are scared of, whether it's public speaking, whether it's climate, whatever it is. And as a family, we do it together. And then we celebrate the victory when they actually accomplish it. And and we make it a big deal. That's awesome. And that and 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 that and you start implying that and you start building that in your in your memory block where that celebration, that that feeling of victory is way more powerful than that loss or that fear. You start, it starts engraving. It starts becoming part of your material, right? It starts becoming engraving of who you are and your DNA. And then it starts building. And you start from a young age once and twice. And by the time they turn 18, you build winners. You build winners. It instills confidence all day. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. We love that. And we, like I said, we were thinking about, or just kind of before this, talking about it would be something good to do for the podcast. Uh, not only because we are about growth and professional development, but we've got a guy who's not here who is deathly fucking afraid of public speaking. And so it would also make good content. Which so is I, surprising because he's actually like probably the best bullshitter out of the group. Yeah. Yep. But you get him in front of a Like he can talk on the podcast all day long, but you get him in in, uh, in front of large groups of people or whatever, he uh, he tends to to freeze up a little bit. So again, I think it's a great opportunity for growth individually for us. And then obviously really, really good content. 
Yeah, public speaking is, I mean, you, there's tons of studies. Public speaking is probably one of the biggest fears for most people, right? Over death. Yep. They fear yeah, yeah. public and speaking I, more than death. I, I, I state this all the time. I don't know if you guys ever heard this. Um, there's three things that I think if they incorporate in, into every high school around North America, around the world, we'd have such stronger leaders, more confident people, sales, public speaking, and networking. Yeah. Teach those three things in high school. Get rid of algebra and all this bullshit that no kid's going to use the rest of their life. And literally, all of a sudden, you'll see leaders and 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 completely, complete the next level of CEOs. Just it'll just expand so quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. we can have a whole conversation about education here. That's for sure. <laughs> Forget uh, parallelograms. Yeah, <laughs> teach me how to expand my network. And you were talking about that earlier, um, networking, or, or you were talking about uh, putting your surrounding yourself with uh, high achievers, right? Yeah. We've done uh, we've done podcasts on auditing your circle. We've done podcasts on mentors and taught what we talk about. And you kind of alluded to with silent mentors, you know, whether it's through books we read, podcasts we listen to, bringing on high achievers like yourself. Uh, you have actually never worked for a company. You're literally your first job was being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think right before the age of seventeen. So yeah. talk to us about that. How did you get into that? And then who was your mentor that? led you into or mentors that led you into being an entrepreneur? There's two sides to that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that 17 thing in, in a sec, but my, my, out of my family tree, my grandfather, I'm, I'm from Toronto, Canada, back in Portugal was, was a very successful entrepreneur. So um, when I started in that, yeah, I don't think he really directly was my mentor to get into become an entrepreneur. I think I always had that hustle in me, but when I did become an entrepreneur, he was a valid part of my growth. I would talk to him on a weekly basis and he would give me advice and stuff like that. Um, I, I was on a podcast not too long ago and, um, and we were having that whole discussion of uh, whether you're born an entrepreneur, whether you could teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. And, and I have always had that mindset of um, you could teach somebody the skills, you could teach somebody the tools, you can't teach somebody the hustle. Yeah. You're either you're born a hustler and you really drive. Because those tools and those skills will last a couple of months and then if you don't have that drive to continue when, when you're down, what's going to push you? It's like all those people, I always say this, that go to those Tony Robbins events and there's 5,000 people in the audience and they're there for the weekend. Their hands are clapping, they're screaming. And then they go back on a Monday and Tuesday to their horrible job. And by Wednesday, their life sucks again. And, and that's this reality of it. Yeah. And, and, but this guy opened up my eyes to something. He said something to me was very, um, it was just interesting. He said, a lot of, people don't realize is your environment could impact who you are growing up. But when I mean, and I said that and I stood there and he said, well, your parents weren't entrepreneurs. You had no real entrepreneurs around you growing up, but because you saw your father and your mother work so hard in factories to achieve just to get by. Yeah. That instilled in your mind that I didn't want that future. And that indirectly forced you to hustle and push you towards another direction. So uh, there's a different way of looking at that, right? And, um, but uh, at 17, I, I found a need. I found a need. Um, it just came in my plate. I've always was a hustler. I was a type when I was 13, 14, my dad would drop me off at a sports card uh, convention show. I would go there 20 bucks in my pocket, buy packs of cards, open them, sell them, trade them, come back with a hundred bucks. I would do that like on a weekly basis. And I had this whole system built in. And I was the only buddy at 13, 14, all my friends that had some cash in my pocket. And at 17, after high school, um, not after high school, after um, we're in high school, and I was uh, grade 12, I think. And um, me and my buddies were to a, a mall 
after school. And it was a little, it was a little small mall. And a couple of guys worked there part-time at the closed stores and whatever. And we, I would talk to the managers and they always say like between three and seven kids are coming in after high school and they're always stealing. We can't control this. And I was like, there's gotta be a way. And I said, I started doing some research and I was talking to a couple of people and like just prevention, just literally put a security guard outside. I go, how easy is that? I went to my dad. I did a little research. Um, I took $250 loan from my dad. I got a business, sold business license for 60 bucks, got some business cards, got three security jackets, three walkies, hired my buddies, went down there, got made up some contracts and got a contract. I was getting the stores to pay me 13, I think it was 13.50 an hour. And I was paying my all my buddies from high school 6.25 an hour. Back then that was minimum wage. And I would from three to seven, they would stand in front with a security jacket and walk and not do nothing, but I would prevent people kids who they would go to the next store. And then all of a sudden I got from one to two. I ended up with like eight shops in that mall at one time. Um, all the only issue is I was doing that for a bit. I was actually making some good money. And uh, my buddies started calling in sick all the time. And then I was taking shifts. And my cousins were taking, and then it got to a, become a family affair, everybody working. Yep. And my yep. parents were like, this is crazy. Like, this is, can't happen. I ended up selling the business about a year and a half later. And um, all these years later, it's called Strictly Security Services. The guy that bought the company off me, still runs the company, oh, that's which crazy. is pretty insane. So that was my first real venture of being an entrepreneur at 17. Yeah, I mean, that's insane. It's, if you have that many shops and you're making a $7, what, $8 profit, you're close it was to good. $50. It was, it was only three hours a night, but it was good. It was good. It was only Monday to Friday, but it was it was good money back then. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And something, I know you've touched on it before, and, and with the last year with the pandemic, um, my business was affected. Um, I sell race car parts, uh, all over the country, and for which type of cars? Uh, for midgets and sprint cars specifically. Oh, okay, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's what I, I. That's that's my niche market, and I had a very scary period last year where there was no no racing going on. So I was forced to to pivot my business and find other avenues to to bring in money. So what have you had to do in the last year to do that? Because I know you do have a real estate or short term rental. Uh, housing. And I think in Canada, they completely shut that down. And how did you pivot from there? Yeah. So but be honest, both my companies were drastically affected, right? I mean, um, we started more in 2006. We've been at a steady 18 to 20% growth year to year for over 15 years. 2008 came along. Our business was built around wholesale accounts. So all of a sudden we sell to all the mama papa martial arts gyms. I refuse to hit big box. I always focus on the mama papa martial arts gyms. I was the only one really doing in North America. We dealt with about 1800 gyms doing extremely well. And all of a sudden the gyms are closed. And we're like, what the fuck? Gyms are closed. We have no customers. Yeah. Um, so um, I've always been the type where I pivot. And uh, so I pivoted very quickly to B and C. I, I, I actually, a lot of people were scared. I actually put up, I think we, we, we increased our budget by like 30, 40% in the marketing department. We literally went stupid with the marketing and really went B2C and really focused on online just to be able to make enough profit to pay the bills to get through. Mm -hmm. And then our um, our rental business, yeah, the government stopped all um, STAs, uh, short-term accommodations. We have four properties and we're in the process um, uh, right by the bottom of the hill in a place called Blue Mountain. And we're in the process at the same time of building out a 16-acre cabin resort. And that had to be hauled down and stopped. So um, I found a little loophole in the system that it was able to you always have to find loopholes, man. There's ways oh, yeah. of getting, as an entrepreneur, there's always ways of getting through. And I found a little loophole in the system that um, if somebody's been misplaced from their home, um, whether it's construction, whatever it is, by law, we're allowed to accommodate them. So I got some legal documents made up saying, hey, if, and I, everybody that wanted to rent, I would say, you got to sign this. You got to put a reason why. 
and I'll let you stay. Yeah. And as long as I have this, my ass covered. A lot of people wouldn't do it, but it, we did enough to get us through. Yeah. And, and so our bills were paid. So it wasn't a profitable year in both those businesses, but we didn't lose. But it also gave me the opportunity to venture on in 12 months. I, I, I recorded 120 episodes of the podcast. I wrote a book, became number one in 11 categories, started a man's purpose. Like I, I really honed on to other things as that was just maintaining itself and through the process. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you do that. I think Tony Robbins has the quote that it's uh, when people can achieve their goals, it's not a lack of resources, it's a lack of resourcefulness, right? Uh, and so yeah. that's exactly what you were. You were you were dead set on finding a way to make it through that, uh, which I think is again, I think is is awesome. So I guess my question off of that is. Um, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship, right? I think our target demo is just graduated college up to like 35 is the sweet spot. And um, a lot of people that are thinking about starting their own business. So this is kind of a two-part question, right? Yeah. You're, if you had to just give uh, three tips, right? If somebody was going to go start their own business, what that was going, what that would be. And then um, to take it a step further, for those entrepreneurs out there that are listening that want to take it from a six-figure business to seven-figure business, what do they do to hit that next step? Yeah, so the first part is, um, we talked about that. You've, you've said the word a few times today is you have to have a purpose and you have to have a passion for what you're doing. If you don't have a passion for what you're doing, if you don't wake up every single day and every day feels, whether it's Friday, whether it's Saturday, whether it's Monday, every day feels the same. You're excited to get to work. You're excited to, I mean, that original excitement when you're starting a business, that fades away pretty quickly when shit hits the fan. And, and you know, with as being an entrepreneur, shit's going to hit the fan. That's just, yep. you're going to get a customer complaint. You're going to get a bad review. You're going to get stuff. Stuff's going to be returned. So you have to have that passion when you wake up every single day. You truly love what you're doing. That's the first step. So find something that you have a passion for, something that you could wake up every day and be like, you know what? I'm impacting somebody else's life. I'm impacting my life. Something that you're going to do. Once you have that, I'm a strong believer. You never have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of people think I got to start something. I got to make it different. Like, man, that's ball bullshit. Study everybody in that industry that you want to be. Study how they are, what they sell, what products they sell, what's their quickest turnover rate, what products are good, how many employees, where are they look. Study them inside out. Once you study them inside out, grab a sheet of paper and write down everything you like they do, everything that you would take from that. Now study somebody else and study somebody else and study somebody else. And so all of a sudden, your list starts filling up pretty quickly of what things you like. You don't have to copy them 100%. You take the parts that you like and you start building up your own wheel. Yep. And you start building it up. And as you're building it up, by studying these people, you're speeding up your process because now you're eliminating. If somebody comes and studies what I did with Kamora now, they're going to eliminate 15 years of my mistakes. Yeah. So study somebody, have a passion for it, mm -hmm. and, and be ready to work, man. Don't be scared to put in the hours, man. Put in the hours and be smart about it. Yep. Now, the second part is um, when you're scaling from a six to a seven or to an eight, uh, it all comes to, I believe, I'm a strong believer who you surround yourself with. Don't you, you surround, never be the smartest person in the room and don't be scared of that. As an entrepreneur and as a boss, a lot of people will never put themselves in a situation where their staff is smarter than them or their staff could do more than them. I'm, I'm the opposite. I want, I want my staff to be complete beasts. And if I train them for a year or two years and they're here and they're doing amazing, they decide to go on their own. Oh, oh, well, move on to the next one. But I want to surround myself with the smartest, best employees I possibly can and literally be open up and not be scared 
of a word that I think Brad mentioned before is pivot. Um, when you're ready to scale to the next level, you have to be able to pivot at a dime. When shit happens, you have to be able to pivot and keep on growing, or you see where the, where the, the finish line is and how you're going to pivot to get to the next level. So don't be scared and don't fall in love with your same patterns. Always be ready to change. Surround yourself with the right people and literally take chances, man. I mean, uh, any any time we're going to be able to win is taking chances, whether it's financially, whether it's physically, take chances. Don't be scared to put yourself online because if you talk to the most successful, successful entrepreneurs in the world, they all put themselves in a situation where they could have lost everything to get to the next level. So sometimes you have to put yourself in that situation to take that opportunity, right? Not be scared to take that opportunity, which comes back to fear, right? Yep. And I, I, I think that's interesting too, because I think in the last year, um, everything that's happened, there's been a lot of complacency that's almost been instilled in people. Like, oh, hey, let's just let's just get through this. If we do this, we can get to the next step. Where um, the people that had the most success in the last year were the people that said, no, fuck this. I'm going to take a chance right now and see if I can make something happen. And they're already five steps ahead of everybody else who's still waiting for the next step. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah and, just, and just to piggyback off that, yeah, Brad, it, we've talked about this before. It's people that... Not only are being complacent, but um, especially over here in America, it's people that are saying, I can take a back seat and I can just fucking kick it, right? Like, yeah. I'll collect unemployment. I don't have to look for a job, right? Even if I do find a job, I'm probably going to make just as much. So it develops this, this laziness instead of people like yourself or somebody that might be doubling down trying to, to really take advantage of a new market. That's, that separates the, 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 the winners and losers. Let's just be That's honest. It. Yeah. That separates the winners and losers. That's the easiest way to explain it, right? And if you look at the, even the Canadian market, we've had 12,000 plus restaurants right across Canada that have all locked their doors in the last 12 months. And I was talking to a few local mama papa restaurants that I know the owners quite well. They're buddies of mine. And these guys had record years in 2020. Record years. You know why? Because one of them actually came to me for advice and we sat down and, and, and we literally went through his whole whole system he was running and we tripled literally and I didn't charge anybody mine we tripled his takeout rate we created a service that anywhere five five kilometers from his restaurant he was doing literally walkout delivery with kids doing deliveries he literally changed up his whole model and he actually doubled his sales in 2020 because he was able to pivot and not be scared so excuses and laziness those are those are losers, man. Those are yep. guys that are never never going to see to the next level. And 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 I think 2020 was an eye opener of who's really out there to survive. Right, both my businesses were 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 getting killed, but through the process, Kamora, I actually in 2020 signed four licensing agreement. As the businesses are all closed, I signed four massive licensing agreements with Kamora, and and through the whole process, like I said, I started a man's purpose. I started coaching. And and through the I don't know if I told you guys this um, for three years I was I was taking entrepreneurs under my wing I took sixty four entrepreneurs under my wing never charged a penny I was coaching them just to give back um, through this process I I took on coaching to another level as bring extra income so my staff could I never wanted my staff to go home so I made sure they're always paid we took on coaching we took on the podcast I wrote a book that like we did I I, I literally said I'm going to bring in as much different passive income rentals and we started a couple of other t shirt companies lines so we started a whole bunch of different stuff to bring as much passive income because. I knew exactly what you're saying. There's a lot of lazy asses out there. Now is my opportunity to really, really kind of pass over them, right? 
And I think you mentioned earlier the difference between being self-employed and being a real entrepreneur. And I think the last year separated a lot of that. 100%, 100%. It, it, it let the world know who is, who is here to actually make the fucking money and who's here to just get by. 100%. And, and something that, you've, that I heard that you've done, and I, I'm in the sort of the same situation, but not in real estate. Matt, Matt has a little bit of real estate play. But from what I understand is every real estate investment you have is, is paid in full when you purchase it. You're not taking out a mortgage for it. And that's, that's like ass backwards from how everybody else teaches you how to get in the real estate game, right? So yeah. I, I have, my business is completely debt-free. Every piece of machinery that I own, I, I own 100% of. I'm not making payments on anything. So I find that um, super intriguing. So, so what made you decide to go to take that play? Yeah, so I mean, I've always had that. I mean, that's kind of my old school mentality. I guess something I took from my dad. My dad was, my dad was, when he passed, he was 76. And man, he, he it was always cash. He didn't have a, he didn't have a credit card to his name still. He's old school to the max, right? Um, but uh, when we got married, we literally, me and my wife saved for, God, six years, five years before we got married. And we got married, we put that, our mindset before we had kids, we wanted our house paid off, which is against kind of everybody's mindset. So within the first year and a half, almost two years, we had our house paid off. And as I, because I really wanted to focus on my business, I said, this would be one thing off my stress and I could really focus on my business. And as the process all started, um, when I started Kamor, where I realized Kamor, where very quickly had a really a lot of potential in 2006. So I could have easily rented a place, been paying $4,500, $5,000 a month, $6,000 a month, having massive warehouses and offices and all this stuff. And I was like, nah. And I ended up using my neighbors, my garage, my parents' garage storage. I had my whole basin set up with all desks for all my staff would come over my house and work. And we ran that business out of my house for six years. Nobody had a clue. Nobody knew that. My neighbors thought I was crazy. Uh, twice a month, we'd have a, a 15-wheeler stop in front of the house and we'd be pulling all skids into my garage. And, and I did that for six years to save. And I saved and I saved and I saved. And my first building... Um, I got it as power of sale. It was um, originally it was four hundred and eleven thousand. I got it. Uh, it was auctioned off by the bank. I got it for two hundred eleven thousand. And this till this day is. And I'm, I'm sitting here. It's our. It's a. It's a loft setting. It's our office. It's our showroom, and it's our two floor warehouse. And and that became my first real investment. But when I really got into real estate was um, about three four years after my uh, my son was born. Um, I didn't know his future. And in my head, I kept looking at my wife saying, if something were to happen to me right now, Kamora is, is killing it. This company would fall a fuck apart in four months. There's no way my staff would continue this business. I go, my wife works a nine to five job. She wants to independence. She wants nothing to do with my businesses. But what's going to happen with this business? My kids are babies. Like, what's going to happen with this business? And I said, I, I got to have something that's more sustainable, something that could bring some income, but something that no matter what, they have stress-free. Something happens to me. And I went on a venture and I said, listen, I go, I study, study, study the market. And I realized vacation rentals was a great income if you find it at the right location. I found a four season place that had a ton of old, these old at the bottom of the hill condos. And um, this place in the summer is bikes. Um, uh, it's all outdoor activities in the summer. It's like Spartan races, everything in the winter is full ski resort. It's got 13 hills, five-star resort, beautiful. And I bought, and I found a place right next door where these buildings were like 30 years old. Nobody was touching them. And I was like, this is great. So I ended up um, buying one for incredible price. Um, I paid a two floor loft, two bedrooms, two bathrooms, bottom of the ski resort. Um, I'll tell you guys the price. It was full kitchen. I ended up paying 140 for it. Jeez, um, I bought geez. this place. I, I, me and my pops, my dad was so handy. 
And uh, we did a full gut rental to it. And I was like, and all of a sudden I was getting 250 a night without even trying. Jeez. And I was like, this is great. And then I literally told my dad, I got to buy more of these. And I literally started knocking on doors. I would go on the weekends and knock on people's doors and offer money to people. And, and that's how it all started. And, and, and through the whole process, what I've realized is through those years before I bought my first, what I did was I was a, I was literally a tight ass. So what I would do is I would look at Kamora and I would put a certain amount of money every single month aside. I'm, and I'm, and then that's pure old school. I would take a slump, whether it's 10 G's or eight G's, whatever I could for that month, I would set it aside. And what I would do is starting the month, I would put that into a separate account to GIC and I would just lock in there. Not making much interest. I would just lock it. act like I don't have that money. And what I would do is at the end of the month, if I needed to pay a bill, I would hustle my ass off. I would never touch that money. And I did that month after month after the first property. Now we got rental income, no mortgage. Plus I'm still saving. So the second year to buy a property, so much easier. The third year to buy a property, so much easier. I've been buying a property every single year for nine years. That's and awesome. I'm going to continue to do that. My goal is to have 20 properties. And I've been doing that year by year because I buy smart. I buy low. I, I'm not, I, I'm never on the rush to buy something. I try to find stuff that people have no interest in that I think are going to double and triple. Like that original first condo we bought at 144, I ended up buying three more in that area, all between 100 to 140 all destroyed, spent about $15,000, $20,000 on each one to do a makeover. They're all, they're all selling for about seven fifty dollars to $100,000 now. Yeah, not a problem there. And, and that's in, in, in a few years, right? So I've always done this. So my property is either commercial or vacation. They're steady, impacted, passive income, and they're all paid off. So if something were to happen to me today, my kids are, they could sit on their ass the rest of their life and never have to stress about it. And, and that was a goal of mine. And now, and when I started it, I really focused on um, after I bought the first, I really focused on every single piece of property I bought. I always have two of them. So one for each kid. So they're identical. And why I have nine is because I bought a resort, but it was actually two pieces of land that I joined together to build a resort. We're building out a resort, but everything I've done has been with my children in mind, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Uh, and it's, it's tips for me because I, I wanted to ask you about the real estate stuff selfishly. So I'm, um, have you ever heard of house hacking? So no. it's so what I did is for my first property I bought a duplex and so yeah. I live in the duplex and so I get the uh, the flexibility of a very low down payment and yeah. I just have to live there for a year. So yeah. the goal is to buy and then obviously two people you know two tenants will move in like one tenant's already moved in the upstairs that already pays my mortgage right yeah. uh, and so it's do that year over year so it starts to cash flow and then yeah. like I said maybe five to five years down the road, I've got five properties that are not only cash flowing me money, but everybody's paying down the mortgage. Oh, so, 100%. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, not to the point exactly where I can go out and just and just buy cash like you. But but, but, you know, but, but you're you're doing, I mean, that's just the way, way. I mean, in the end of the day, I can't stress this enough. You can have the most successful business in the world. Nothing like, <clears throat> nothing like real estate. Nothing like real estate. Nothing that has a return on investment like real estate. I picked up 16 acres for 100 in a place called Muskoka, Canada, which when people hear they're going to think I'm crazy. But all my deals are always private too. I always make my own contracts. I literally make my own contracts. I get a lawyer just to look it over, sign it, and we move on. And I refuse to pay real estate fees. And uh, it was um, 16 acres. I picked it up off a guy that he was pretty desperate going through. He had gone through a pretty nasty divorce. He was pretty desperate. I picked up for 130000 for 16 acres with the water on the property. Um, it was it was valued probably double that. So it wasn't crazy. Over the last year and a half, nobody could travel. That land has become so valuable because people are trying to build massive cottages up in that area. Um, that land's probably got to about 1.5 right now. Holy shit. 
in a matter of 14 months. So real estate, if you buy smart, is such a smart investment. But you have to buy smart, right? So you can't be one of those guys. But what you're doing with triplex, triplexes and 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 stuff like that is those are gold mines, man. Those are gold mines if you buy them right. Yep. No, I appreciate that. So um the last part here, Jeff, is our OnlyFans inquiry. Uh, and which where we have a fan write in typically through Instagram uh, about a real world problem that they might be going through and yeah. uh, and ask you for some advice. So Brad, what do we what do we got? Uh, this one's from Tim, and he said, "What advice would you give for people who are on the fence about becoming an entrepreneur?" Okay, so there's two sides to that, right? I mean, I am not against individuals working a nine to five job because um, every great business needs great employees. Yeah. You have to be able to be ready to sacrifice yourself and be able to put in the hours. I think a lot of people, um, they see the glamour, they see the lights of being an entrepreneur. They don't realize that being an entrepreneur, there's not a nine to five job. An entrepreneur could be working midnights. It could be working at 4.30 in the morning. You're doing what has to be done to make the job finished or completed, right? And especially when you start your own business, you're wearing tons of hats. So one is... If you're ready to jump on, I mean, I'm I'm all about being an entrepreneur. I love it. I, I think it's the greatest thing in the in, in in we have is is the opportunity to work for ourselves. So I would say go for it. Um, I would, like I said, we talked about before. I would find a field or something that you truly have a passion in or have interest in, and really, really study the market. Don't be scared to study the market and look at how you could focus on in the last 12 months, look at the businesses that were impacted in the last 12 months. And now before you even start a business, think of over the next four years, three years, if something were to happen again, would that business that you're planning to start be impacted? Prepare yourself, prepare yourself for worst case scenarios at all times and be ready to, like I said, just, just, Put in the work and 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 understand what sacrifices you have to do. And I think the most important is is have the presence to, if you are married, to make sure your wife is on the same track as you. Because I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs and they, we have entrepreneurs in general have I think is in Canada is a sixty one percent divorce rate. Understand the impact on your family and and how you are not going to allow it to impact your family. Yep, that's a good one. That's a great answer. Uh, Okay, cool. So we appreciate that answer. Uh, and Tim, thanks. Um, and and honestly, this was a really fun, fun podcast. We learned a lot, Jeff. I appreciate you guys, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. So thank you for that. Yep. Yeah, thanks for coming. We really appreciate it. It was good uh, good connecting with you. Yeah, well, oh, before we, before you go, uh, where can people find you? Instagram handle, website, what's the best way yeah. to get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, website is just jeffreylopes.com, J-F-F-R-E-Y-L-O-P-E-S. Or um, I'm on all the social media platforms, but Instagram's the easiest one to get a hold of me. Uh, you can DM me or just follow us. It's uh, at Jeff Lopes, J-F-F-L-O-P-E-S. Okay, awesome. cool. Head well, up, guys. We appreciate you again, Jeff. Thanks again. Thank you, guys.